0: Laurie, who will share his experience, strength, and hope for 25 minutes. Uh, For the privilege of being able to speak uh, and for having uh, been able to listen to the previous two speakers, um, they're examples of the incredible, I'm not sure I'd call it a gift, but incredible treasure that this program gives us, which is that suffering can become a model for recovery uh, to people who are still suffering. And I'm very, I'm very moved by that. Um, this is a. Uh, I'm in Canada and we celebrated Thanksgiving last month, uh, but uh, gratitude is is the theme. But I'm I I believe I was asked to speak from the standpoint of relapse and recovery, and I want to speak about that because I'm very grateful. I'm not grateful for the relapse, but I'm grateful for everything i learned uh, as a result of my journey through relapse into recovery. Um, first of all, I'm grateful to an AA guy who had been in the gutter and who gave me the sense that my food addiction deserved as much attention on my part as his alcoholism deserved on his part. And I, I, you know, I had heard all of the stories, his stories and his friend's stories about true gutter. We're talking about lying in the streets. We're talking about losing, losing absolutely everything. I had, none of that had happened to me. I was really heavy. I had eaten all my life. It was a, a very difficult life, but I had not suffered the way. Nor is it true that from almost all of us, unless we are at the absolute extreme of undereating or overeating, will one bite or one under no, lack of bite create a decision that is uh, irremediable. I mean, you know, we're not going to suddenly eat a donut and walk into traffic. For instance, or something of that sort. So, our illness and our addiction is an addiction that is a death by a thousand cuts. The more we undereat, the more we overeat, the more we become less able to do things, the more isolated we become, the more dependent upon other people we become, the more unable to participate in society, the more our, our bodies begin to deteriorate to such an extent that we are not living in the way that we could be living and, uh, and, and die either earlier or with a great deal of suffering on the way. Uh, it is a very serious illness, but it's not one that we often treat that seriously, nor is it one that I um, Treat it seriously until my friend told me I should look at OA. And I said, uh, you know, I've, I've never had a business meeting on a Thursday, eating a donut on a Wednesday, and woke up in a hotel room on a Friday, not knowing where I'd been, because those were his stories, and he didn't laugh. And he said, if you don't start taking your food as seriously as I take my alcohol, you're gonna die. and And I know that, I knew it was true then, I know it's true now. My family is a family of overeaters, compulsive eaters, and I've had, I have diabetes on three grandparents' side and it is a hidden killer. And, and it leads to all kinds of uh, uh, deathly and near deathly illnesses that, uh, that are so dangerous plus other uh, parts of, of, my, of my family. I walked into my first OA meeting, February the 11th, 1986. So that's 30, it'll be 34 years ago in February. And I immediately got a sponsor and I immediately started to work the steps and I lost weight and I felt great, and then I relapsed. And then I went back to my sponsor and I reworked the steps, I lost weight, and then I gained weight. And this went on for six or seven years. Um, I set up a meeting and it died. Why? Because I set up the meeting and I was dying. And uh, and I was the only constant in the meeting and who wanted to watch me talk about how wonderful this program was while I was obviously gaining weight and not working and not do, I was doing something wrong. I finally went to a meeting that was full of recovery. My meeting died and, um, and here's another person I'm grateful for. For a number of months, I went to that meeting and people would ask me how I was and I'd say fine. And they'd say, that's wonderful, love to hear you talk. You know, keep coming back, you know, just love you. And I kept on eating, I kept coming back and I kept on eating. Uh, and kept on talking. And one day, the shyest woman in the room, a woman to whom I am eternally grateful, came up to me and said, how are you, Lori? I said, fine, as I had said to that question for at like, least the last four, five, six months. And she leaned into me. And I, I don't think she was more than this far apart from me. And she said, I mean, really? And I just, Ooh, okay. Now, there were really two options available to me. One that I could have said, how dare you take my inventory? This is a safe place to be. This is terrible, you know, I'm not coming back anymore. If I had done that, I didn't, but if I had done that, the meeting would have prospered because I was a person who was driving off newcomers, talking the talk and not walking the walk. And I also would have come back with my tail between my legs if if I had left, but I didn't. I said, I am in terrible shape because she knew I was in terrible shape. And she told me later she had prayed for two weeks before she came up with whatever it was that came out of her mouth that got to me, because I don't know if she knew what, what she was gonna say before she spoke to me. And I started to I started to work something, something began to happen. And then I began to work with someone else who asked me to sponsor him. It turned out that he had been sober in AA for 15 years, much longer than I had been even closely absent in OA, and uh, we began to work the steps together. I, he was my sponsor, as much as I was his, neither of us would be covered, so it wasn't the kind of sponsor-sponsor relationship. And as I worked the steps with him, bringing to him the OA experience that I had had, and he brought his AA knowledge and experience uh, with him, I'm grateful for the learning the mistakes I made while I was relapsing. And the first mistake I made was not accepting what our OA 12 and 12 talks about on pages two and three, what the dignity of choice pamphlet talks about and what the big book first started to talk about is that I had to accept that there was a part of my addiction that had a a physical like component it was a component that was once I started, I could not stop. And that sense, whether it's psych- so deeply psychological, the thirty years of psychotherapy wouldn't get it from, wouldn't get it out of me, or whether it's truly physical and there's dopamine and you know all that kind of stuff, which oxytocin—I I don't, I, I don't know what oxytocin is. Oh, I know what oxytocin is. Not that, but whatever it is, whatever these things, um, uh, serotonin. I don't care whether it really is physical. What I care about is it has a physical uh, uh, characteristic. And that is that just as I cannot stop blinking for more than 30 seconds, and I cannot stop breathing for more than a minute, some, I think the world record is four minutes, at a certain point, my body takes over and says, I'm gonna have some, I'm gonna eat, I want more. And if I accept that there is that component to it, then the obvious answer is that I have to abstain. I cannot indulge in that which causes me these cravings that my body caused me all my life. Understanding and accepting that meant, going, uh, meant leaving and going away from every single thing that I thought was true about from the diet industry that I had been part of everything I'd ever read, all the diets I'd ever been on, they told me once I lost my weight, I could eat anything in moderation. And that meant that every time in OA as well for seven years and before that, every time I lost the weight, I would take back once a week, maybe a half a scoop of ice cream, cut carefully with a a razor blade um, or two cookies or a half a donut. Measured carefully, which ultimately turned out to be a gallon of ice cream, uh, which I'd be eating uh, just hunched over, or five donuts, or, you know, plus donuts, plus ice cream, and all that. Um, And that's what happened to me for the first seven years in this program. When I finally accepted that I had to do my own analysis of what it was that I could not indulge in in the group conscience of OA is that it's my analysis, not your analysis. And no one else has the right to tell me what to eat or what not to eat, uh, that uh, I can eat things that some other people uh, in this meeting uh, can't eat and they can eat things that I can't eat. It it doesn't matter. What's important is how honest we are about ourselves. And also that we have to take into account eating behaviors because uh, OAers are on a sort of a spectrum between the complete behavior addictions like gambling and the complete single substance addictions like alcohol. And many of us are in between. We have eating behaviors. We have single substances. We have some ingredients. We have particular binge foods. Uh, there's a whole combination of things that we have to be careful to analyze. Once I accepted that, I realized that was my first big mistake in a way in my first seven years of relapse. That I was not accepting. I did not want to accept that I could never eat this stuff or indulge in this stuff. But what I also learned was that the, my real problem was not that I couldn't have this stuff because any sane human being knowing that eating this stuff or indulging in the food, my trigger foods or indulging my eating behaviors would cause me to go back to all the horrible things that I, I uh, was trying to escape from. Once I accepted that, any sane human being would simply say, why indulge in them? I I, mean, if I were allergic to shrimp or allergic to peanuts, and I would die from shrimp or peanuts, I wouldn't eat peanuts. I wouldn't eat shrimp. I mean, I'm saying, but when it came to ice cream or it came to uh, fried uh, French fries or something like that, or or fried chicken, um, uh, something clicked in my mind that said, you can have some. And very often the reasons given were deeply emotional. I'm lonely, I'm tired, bad things are going on. You know, no one loves me uh, and and all that. And sometimes they were as stupid as, well, this is free range chicken or it's organic butter or, um, you know, or they made it especially for you or everyone's looking or you're standing up and it doesn't count. uh, Or you've been good for a year, six months, a month, a week, a day. An hour or five minutes ago, you didn't eat the bun, so you can have the pie. You know, I mean, these stupid reasons and insane reasons showed me that it was my mind that was at fault and it would find any reason whatsoever to indulge. Whatever clicked, and it could be as deep as the emotions I often felt, and it could be as stupid as the immediate motion. that no one's looking. So understanding that and understanding that what the steps do is get rid of the mind problem so that I'm constantly sane. And that my job was to get through the steps while abstinent, in or, because without abstinence, how, how am I honest? How can I be honest enough to work the steps? You know, there isn't a 12-step fellow, uh, fellowship in the world that, well, always says it's ideal to do this. All the other fellowships say, get clean, work the steps. Um, And that's what I did. So uh, I worked the steps and I worked them as quickly as I could. Uh, And the promise given to me was that by the time I finished step nine, I no longer want these things. I would have this incredible miracle happen, which was that I would no longer want to indulge in these things. I would recoil as from a hot flame to quote uh, the big book. And this came true. And it came true for me about 27 and a half years ago. And I can now be around things that used to beckon to me and watch other people eat them and enjoy them and be told, oh, there's a new flavor of this. Uh, You've never had this or you've never eaten at this place where they have this incredible whatever and say, who cares? I don't care. I'm a sane human being. Why would I eat anything that would cause me to go back to the hell that I used to be in. So the second, the second mistake I made, the first mistake was not accepting this whole physical component of working out my own plan of eating. The second mistake that I'm very grateful to is that after I had recovered and I was really working the steps, I was listening to a podcast, uh, a big book study actually, where uh, the speaker said step 10 is steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine done in the context of recovery. And that was like, well, that's very different from what I read in the step. It says when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So as it turned out, I had been going through um, some very difficult times in my second or third year of uh, of recovery and relapse, my second or third year in OA where difficult things were going on, and mostly my wife's family, but I loved them so much, and they were having so much difficulty. And my wife was busy helping to take care of her dying sister, her mother with Alzheimer's, her dying father, and I loved them all, and I knew that it was important for her to do that, and I was feeling resentment that I didn't have her, and I was having to take care of the kids. I mean, I was feeling guilty that I felt resentment, and what would I do? A kid would drop a, drop a you know, my five-year-old uh, would, would, would drop a, a glass and liquid would spill and I'd yell at them. And step 10 would tell me, apologize. So I'd apologize to them. But what this speaker told me was that I had to do what I had done in steps four through nine, do a complete inventory of what was going on in my life. And that step 10 That notion of that, which I do whenever I need to, I I differentiate, it's not important. I differentiate that from a step 11, uh, evening meditation. It's not important. Whatever it is, I take care that whatever is going on in my entire life is reviewed, inventoried. My part in it is, is noted, understood. I share it with another human being in step five. And whatever amends I have to make, and usually they're living amends these days, thank goodness, I make those amends. And uh, whatever decision I have to make that's weighing on my mind, that's a resentment, I write it out, I work it through, and I'm finally able to make a decision that's based on being, um, not trying to uh, be self-willed, being as honest as I can be, being useful, uh, not looking for the ego part of it, and, not, and being full, uh, free of fear. And that ability to, to use step 10 as an ongoing method of keeping my connection with my own higher power uh, has been a, a tremendous uh, gift for me. So I'm just looking at time. Uh, I've got another seven minutes. Great. Just enough time. Um, my gratitude goes, so my, my, the two mistakes I made were not looking at the physical part and not looking at the mental part. And when I, when I find people, and I, I'll often have sponsees who, who might relapse, my experience with relapse and my experience of talking to people in relapse is that I say, you know, there are only two possible reasons. One is perhaps your plan of eating still includes things uh, that you're indulging in that you shouldn't be indulging in, that are causing your body to continue to crave. And so occasionally your body says more, 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 and you just give in. And it's a very important to do that. And I have found many times that people have included in their plan of eating things that they secretly have included and they know they shouldn't, or they look at it and they say, oh, yeah, well, I, I haven't looked at the, uh, the in, in nutrition label for this one. You know, and, 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 and these are the kinds of things. And sometimes they have to add, uh, abstain from certain eating behaviors which they haven't noticed or which have crept up on them. And so that's a very important part of figuring out a relapse is, is your plan of eating still appropriate for you? And should you look at it? And the other is where in the steps did you go wrong? What weren't you doing? How quickly were you, were you not, or how slowly were you doing the steps? And, and, and that's another thing that I want to talk about uh, because my, my ultimate gratitude is step 12. It is the ability to feel useful no matter where I am, what, what I do, and no matter what is going on in this world. This is a really hard world these days. No matter where you are on any political or social spectrum, fear is easy, anger is easy, frustration is easy. All these things that are going on around us, it, 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 for, for me, it's. I liken it to working in a factory where there's a lot of noise and you get used to it, you don't even know what's going on, and yet, it's going on and it's pounding into your head and all these things that are going on around us, even the, the marvels of Zoom and yet the frustration of not being in the room with someone, not being able to hug. I mean, these are, you know, they're both joy, they're, they're wonderful things, but they're also very frustrating. We have to deal with them and step 10 and, and step 11 are ways in which, in which I have learned to deal with them. So in terms of relapse, what I say to people is let's figure out what you did wrong in either your physical aspect or the mental aspect, and let's get you right back on track. That's the other thing I wanted to talk about is that my own sense of step 12 is that I don't want anyone to be dependent upon me. I want them to be dependent upon their own deepest values, whatever higher power they choose. For me, it's deep values, uh, not a deity. And and the, the, the job of the steps is to get rid of the blockage between what I deeply believe in my heart and how I think and act. And the blockage has to be kept being unblocked because clogs keep happening. And so my job is to get them, to help them get to the point where they abstain from that which they have to abstain from, eating behaviors, ingredients, specific foods, and then to get them to work the steps as quickly as possible. I am not one of those people who say there's only one way of doing it. We've got to start reading page one of the OA 12 and 12 and let's read three paragraphs and we'll discuss it today. And we'll read the next three paragraphs to discuss it tomorrow or, or the big book or anything like that. I say, how desperate are you? Do you understand a plan of eating? Do you understand what your problem is? You know, I say, it's up to them to tell me how desperate they are. And if they accept that they have developed a plan of eating, that's right for them and that they want to go on. And that step two has given them hope as the experience of millions and millions of addicts with dozens and dozens of addictions show that what they really want is to be able to walk into a room filled with all their trigger foods and say, doesn't this smell nice? How nice for the people who are about to eat that and how happy I am that I don't want it. That, that, that if that's a miracle for them, I say, let's go on to step three let's say the step three prayer and let's get you on to step four and let's get you on to four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine as fast as possible so you can be of use to other people. You know, the gratitude I feel for the ability to do step 12 is immense. Despite all the um, helplessness I feel about things that are going on in this world and all the frustrations I might feel and the fears I might have for my grandson's uh, future, I know that all that can do if I live in those fears and those frustrations and those angers will be to paralyze me and make me less able to impart to them what I can impart to them, which is love and resilience and curiosity and and, and a sense of morality and principles and courage, because that's what they're going to need. And if I can impart any of that to them, then I'm being as useful as I can be. And I have to deal with that. And step 10, 11, and 12 keep me both being useful and reminding me of the importance of being useful in life. We're not in this world as addicts. We are not in this world to be happy. That is the dubious luxury of normal people, if I can paraphrase the big book. We are in this world to be useful. Your job now is to be of maximum usefulness to others, says the big book. And that is the reality of the addict. In order to deal with our addiction, we have to find a way not to be in our own mind. We have to to think of others and not of ourselves. And, And that is the gift of this fellowship and of this program, is that we have an opportunity to be useful in the very direct way Of carrying the message to those who still suffer. And that is a gift. We have a ready-made way of being useful. You know, the week we can do it when all else fails. We can go to a meeting, we can call someone up, we can write something, we can do anything, and we can be of help to others. And I am I am so grateful to this program. I'm grateful to the 12 steps. I'm grateful to the founders who founded the 12 steps and who founded. Uh, the the, uh, the OA fellowship, because it gives me, as it gives to so many people the opportunity to be of service to others. I am also so grateful for those who have suffered more than I have for their recovery, because they are the ones who can say that I, I cannot say. They can say, look what happened to me, and I have not eaten over that. And I am still serene and I have lived a useful life. I can't say that. I've lived a relatively privileged life. Um, I can only I can talk pretty well, and I hope I can live the life that I'm talking about. But my gratitude is to those who, who are my models, my heroes. And um, I think that's all I want to say. Thank you very much.